Hey folks, just a reminder that you're about to enjoy an academic podcast that explores ideas and interviews some really interesting people. But it just reflects their views, my views, Jim's views, but not the views of the Department of Defense or the Department of the Army. Okay, here's the show. But if you go to war, you go in with overwhelming military force. We have over 100,000 transgender veterans. Why do I deserve to go? Why not any of these guys? They all fought just as hard as me. Welcome to Thank You For Your Service, a conversation with practitioners, scholars, artists, and you about the relationship between the military and civilians. I'm Alice Friend. I'm a senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies and a visiting research professor at the U.S. Army War College. I worked at the Pentagon as a civilian in the office of the Secretary of Defense. And I'm Jim Golby. I served as an Army officer for 20 years. Now I'm a senior fellow at the Clement Center at the University of Texas, Austin. On this podcast, we consider the civilian and military perspectives on war, government, politics, and service. I wanted to take a few moments to talk to our Navy family, our officers and our enlisted sailors, our Navy civilians and our families about the murder of Mr. George Floyd and the events that we've all watched on TV the last several nights. I'm thinking about protests in my country, tis in the sweet land of liberty, the equality expressed in our Declaration of Independence and the Constitution that I've sworn my adult life to support and defend. Racism is contrary to our army values. It's actually an insider threat, but it dwells within hearts and it dwells within our ranks, and we must do everything we can to root it out and crush it. Racism and other discriminatory practices break trust with the team and breaks trust with the American people. And we as an army, we've spent 245 years building trust with the American people, and we will not break that trust today. We are still struggling with racism, and we have much work to do. Racism and discrimination, structural preferences, patterns of mistreatment, unspoken and unconscious bias have no place in America, and they have no place in our armed forces. Yesterday, the Secretary of the Army, the Sergeant, and myself put out a letter uh, addressing uh, racial injustice in the country and the military. And it's something we just can't have. And that letter is just the beginning. Tonight, the U.S. Marine Corps has announced a major change. It is now banning the Confederate flag at both public and workspaces on military bases like Camp Pendleton. Yeah, so, I, you know, I've been really outraged for uh, not just the last week, but but for, you know, it drew up a lot of a lot of rage and a lot of anger uh, from from the past because I've just watched this over and over and over again. And, and uh, I not only see myself in George Floyd, I see my two sons, I see um, the young airmen in our Air Force. And uh, my my greatest fear is not for myself, it's, it's that I wake up one day and one of our airmen will be George Floyd or Tamir Rice or, you know, you, you Philando Castile, you, you name the, yeah. the person. So uh, it's, it's been tough, but but I also realized that one, it's OK for us to be angry. It's OK for me to, to be angry. But but at some point I then have to decide, OK, what next and what yeah. what should we be doing? Both the military and civilian society have been grappling with racism for our nation's entire history. Even though African-Americans served in the Revolutionary War, the Militia Act of 1792 stipulated that only white men can serve in the state militias. Back then, those state forces were the bulk of the military. This pattern continued. Up until World War II, 
the armed forces issued directives to expel black and brown people from service or to maintain segregated units. During World War I, General John J. Pershing wrote a secret memo to his French counterparts instructing them how to treat black American soldiers assigned to fight with them. It is important for the French officers who have been called upon to exercise command over black American troops or to live in close contact with them to have an exact idea of the position occupied by Negroes in the United States. Although a citizen of the United States, the black man is regarded by the white American as an inferior being with whom relations of business or service only are possible. The black is constantly being censured for his want of intelligence and discretion. The vices of the Negro are a constant menace to the American who has to repress them sternly. We must prevent the rise of any pronounced degree of intimacy between French officers and black officers. We must not eat with them, must not shake hands or seek to talk or meet with them outside the requirements of military service. We must not commend too highly the black American troops, particularly in the presence of Americans. Then in 1948, President Harry Truman signed Executive Order 9981, desegregating the U.S. military. The order read, there shall be equality of treatment and opportunity for all persons in the armed services without regard to race, color, religion, or national origin. Truman signed the order at the urging of civil rights activists. It was an election year, and for Truman, the move was as much about politics as it was about ethics. But that doesn't mean those two things were mutually exclusive. But they weren't silver bullets either. The military services were not only slow to implement the order, they continued to struggle with discrimination in both overt and subtle ways. Over the years, each branch of the armed forces has implemented recruiting policies and disciplinary measures to eliminate overt racism and discrimination. But in interviews with six different people for this episode, five military veterans of color and one civilian economist, we learned that covert bias is still operating in the ranks. I used to be a nuclear surface warfare officer, so I was on aircraft carriers uh, working as a nuclear engineer. And particularly in that field, there are so few black uh, people in general, women specifically, you would be experiencing this thing, and I can give an example. Um, we were having something called the MTT, Mobile Training Team. Uh, mm -hmm. They come every couple months, get you ready for a big exam at the end of the year. I was the reactor electrical assistant in charge of all the reactors and the electrical power. And so principal assistant has to go in and talk to this board about items. They write down items for you. You have to go in and explain what's going on with your equipment. Very basic. Um, and they had asked me a question about gauges. And so I went into the room. My senior chief was there and it's all white males and they're all enlisted. So they're all master chiefs and chiefs and senior chiefs and they're all enlisted and they're all white males. And I said, oh, well, here's, this is, this is the reason for this thing. And they didn't like the answer, which happens and it's not a big deal. I said, okay, well, you know, the captain said, this is per the instruction, the captain can actually overrule that. Here's our sign thing by the captain, blah, blah. And so after that, I left. My boss comes in, he's in 06 at this point, and he comes in and he's screaming. He's like, why did you get an attitude with the board? And I was like, what are you talking about? I was just, they asked me a question, I answered the question. He's like, no, you got an attitude. I was like, but you weren't even there, so you don't know. So you have this way that people see you. You tell your boss, your boss believes in, who do you have to talk to about it, right? Can you say, who, who is there to say, uh, that person is just talking? Like, she's not, she was just explaining herself the way she's supposed to. She's talking about the status of her equipment, the status of her people, what, exactly what you want these officers to do about their equipment and 
she cited her regulations or whatever. Uh, long story short, because my senior chief was in there, he was like, uh, the RA was just talking. And she actually did a good job. She explained it. She brought out her, her instructions. Like there was no attitude there, right? And so my boss calms down and the master chief comes out and everybody gets involved. But there is no recourse for me at that point, right? If my senior chief hadn't been in there, then it would have been their word against mine and I would have lost that battle doesn't matter that I have the higher rank. Everyone just said, of course, she has an attitude because she's black, right? And I told my boss, I was like, I don't have an attitude, I'm just black. And I'm talking very specifically about my stuff and I understand my equipment. So throughout my career, those type of things, when they happen, there is nobody to talk to. That was Navy Commander Jada Johnson. We also spoke to retired Army Lieutenant General Dana Pittard. With West Point, it was a good experience. It's a, it's a leadership factory. The thing that just really kind of broke my heart was you sacrifice, you work together, you know, as classmates. Um, our, our class's motto was strength is one. And then the two months before graduation, uh, that incident where I went into a fellow classmate's room, again, you have different information that you're passing through. It's called, called the daily poop. So I was passing it to them, passing information to them, walked out and I thought, I forgot my, my pencil or pen. So I went back into the room and heard something, but I didn't think twice about it because I'm sure it was, it was not what I thought it was. So I picked up the pencil, you know, their eyes were wide open, mouths open. And then I walked out, but one of them ran after me and said, Dana, Dana. I said, uh, yes. <laughs> he said, I'm, I'm so sorry. I said, you're sorry for what? I'm sorry for calling you the N word. These are personal stories, but they add up. The data bear out broad patterns across the military. Although the enlisted ranks are highly representative of the U.S. population, the officer corps are majority white. In general, vast majority white. For example, Hispanic Americans are 18% of the U.S. population and 18% of the enlisted military, but they are only 2% of generals and admirals. Black Americans are about 14% of the U.S. population, about 18% of enlisted personnel, but only about 8% of generals and admirals. And among the enlisted and officers alike, the career paths of people of color are different from those of their white brethren. Bishop Garrison, a former Army officer and a graduate of West Point, explained to us why that matters. When you do have officers in the military, we are often pushed towards combat service and combat service support roles. And when you look for uh, major opportunities of leadership, command moving forward, those positions are often pulled from combat leaders. So if you're out recruiting uh, young men and young women, telling them about the opportunities you have, but you aren't giving them the full dynamic of what's actually out there, that's problematic. If you're not talking to them, and I'm not saying you should push them into combat roles, but if you're not telling them, hey, you can go out and be an airborne ranger, or you can go out and be a uh, field artillery on uh, you know front lines and lead troops, and that can help get you to these flag officer ranks, long term, if you want to make a career out of it, that's problematic because I know for a fact the uh, other kids, white kids, are getting these types of conversations. Because personnel of color don't see people like them in certain specialties or in certain senior positions, they often choose to leave service earlier than their white peers. So when you don't have that representation, that's when you begin to see some of the, the problems that we're continuing to have to deal with within the military when it seems as though there is a tiered system. And when you have that, it, that's going to affect what is 
supposedly uh, the world's greatest, arguably, meritocracy uh, that there is, that if you just do well and if you just follow the rules and if you do your best to stand out, you will be rewarded for those types of actions. But when you consistently don't see that in the representation side, meaning that you know that Bob Smith is a fantastic uh, infantry officer who who has done all of these uh, fantastic things within his career, but for whatever reason, he continuously is not placed in top leadership positions. I, as young Billy Jones lieutenant, sees that. And that affects my career decisions about my willingness to continue to take on this, quite frankly, uh, difficult, arduous path to being a leader in the United States military and to being, because I believe I won't be properly rewarded for my own activity and my own achievement moving forward. Because look, you're not doing it for Bob Smith. Why are you going to do it for, uh, for Billy? Like what? It, it doesn't follow. According to economist, Dr. Rada Iyengar Plum, these dynamics make economic sense. If you don't have the expectation that what you're getting out of it is the same as everyone else, then a different set of people are going to select in and they're going to want, they're going to be expecting different things. You're going to be less likely and willing to put in the total number of years of service. You're going to be less likely to be expecting certain kinds of benefits. You're going to be more likely to be looking for outside opportunities. And all of those things affect the pool of people that you are retaining and promoting. We know from the evidence that representation matters. And when you see people who look and seem like you systematically opting out of a system, that doesn't give you a lot of confidence in your ability to make it in that system. Dan White, another West Point graduate, echoed this idea that there isn't just a push for black officers. There's also a pull. It's that constant conversation you have with yourself. Do I want to be the only one? Is this an industry that I want to be? And then when folks leave with the five and eight year mark, it's also because when they're their value proposition is pretty high. Now a company might say, oh, we have a double minority. They're a veteran and a person of color. So we know we have a lot of veterans. We know that that's an added value. We know we're trying to work on a diversity metric. So let's bring them in and kind of check both blocks and do a story on them for Black History Month and for Veterans Day. So that way it fits the bill. And how do you tell somebody, you know, how do they make that personal decision for their family when, what if they live on post and, they stop seeing black faces, except for a sergeant major. That choice is an important part of diversity in the military. The lopsided distribution of personnel is path dependent. That's a term scholars use. It means that the pattern is self-perpetuating. If you think that there are differences in communication styles or perception, certain life experiences and familiarity, things that make you feel like you are more alike someone, makes you have a stronger affinity to them and more likely to mentor them, more likely to give them the benefit of the doubt, more likely to offer them opportunities, then all of that is a sort of self-fulfilling system where you end up with people who look like the people who were making the decision. So if you start from a place where you have differences in outcomes by race and you keep all of those things without proactively sort of removing barriers, dealing with implicit biases, dealing sort of actively trying to de-bias your review processes, you end up with a system that looks just like the system you started with, right? And so if you, if you want to have a meritocracy, it means that you need to look at the extent to which the merits by which you are judging people are made systematically more difficult 
by certain other institutional or cultural features and then account for that in your selection process. Retired Major General James Johnson explained how these selection effects manifested in the Air Force. There were a couple of assignments where I worked senior officer management, where I managed the life cycle career progress of colonels mm -hmm. in the Air Force. So, you know, we have 4,000 colonels in the Air Force. And um, as you saw that as we go through the ranks, we lose that diversity. I think there might've been five, you know, black two-star generals uh, out of, you know, over 75 mm -hmm. of us. And when, when I was managing the colonels group, we would have hiring authorities, general officers call and say, you know, I'd like to see a more diverse slate of officers for this job I'm trying to hire into. And we'd, we'd tell them, you can't fix it at this point. There's not a more diverse slate because the problem is you have to start at the beginning. And as Dan White told us, even well-meaning efforts to fix the problem can backfire. One of the things is that there's a trap for captains after they are commanders that if you have positions where, you know, we have this conundrum, you want to improve diversity in the military. So you're going to send, the idea is let's send black officers to HBCUs, historically black colleges, to go recruit more black officers and to try to convince them to come combat arms. But their peers are now, their white peers are congressional fellows, are getting graduate degrees, are doing strategy studies, are doing a variety of other things that boards more look at and say, wow, they're high speed. Or if the same black officers are either going to HBCUs or they're kind of into this DNI space. So now their burden that they have is to solve the black issue and the diversity issue while their peers are excelling ahead of them. We heard this idea from Commander Johnson too. The notion that the same black and brown personnel who suffer racism in the ranks are also disproportionately taxed by efforts to address that racism. You're asking us to be race educators, therapists, and all this other stuff in times of crises. But this just isn't something that it's easy to do and that anybody could do it or should be doing it. And I always try to tell people, you know, black people and brown people don't exist to be catalysts for transformation for white people, right? We don't exist to be plot devices in your life stories, right? We all have our own things. And Navy pays me to be a foreign area officer. And so that's what I should do. That's my primary job. That is what my focus is on. I don't get paid to be a race educator. Commander Johnson published a piece in the magazine Proceedings back in July. In it, she critiqued the notion that racism in the military is going to be solved one conversation at a time. For one thing, she says, racism is the result of systems and cultures. As important as individual relationships are, there's too much variation across these conversations to actually resolve a systematic problem. For another thing, those very structures and cultures mean that those conversations aren't the right venue for change. As a person who's often on the receiving end of coffee conversations, you know, people are like, oh, I'm so sorry, this is so shocking. Would you like to talk to me about it? Those conversations are not empathetic as people would like to believe that they are. And again, I can only speak from my own personal experience, obviously, and what I know of my friends' experiences who are also Black. It's actually a very stressful thing, and it's not necessarily a supportive conversation in the way that a lot of people think that it would be supportive. Are all conversations like that? Maybe not. But in my experience, that's what those conversations normally are. They're just stressful because you're trying to manage this person's feelings and emotions around this topic, and that prevents you from actually talking about racism and how it affects your life. 
the problem with racism or any system of domination, whether sexism or homophobia, you're, is you're talking about power. And so you have to find a way to allow people who don't have power in that system to speak honestly and also to not put the burden on them at the same time. Something Commander Johnson touched on was that in conversations about race, things get personal really quickly. But one of the problems experts have noticed in our broader discourse about race is that racism is often understood as something intrinsic to particular individuals rather than a problem society imposes on those individuals. In some ways, I think unhelpfully, we as a society have sort of settled into this notion as racism or being racist as like an identity and anti-racist as like an identity and you either are or you aren't. I more think of it like a much more fluid things. Like I, myself, am, I am sure sometimes racist, sometimes an ally, sometimes anti-racist, all of these things in any given day, week, or month, right? And I do my best to be more one of those than the others, but they're not permanent states of being. And so I think the key to sort of accepting implicit bias is understanding that you can, without malice intent per se, have just, you know, incorporated from the institutions and systems, a set of practices, beliefs, and then actions, associated actions that are biased, right? And, and that doesn't make you a terrible person, and it doesn't mean like you should permanently be considered a racist, but it also like isn't awesome and we probably shouldn't do it. So what can be done about racism in the military? Commander Johnson says educating ourselves is a good place to start. Racial literacy is very important to me. Um, I think we have a case of chronic historical amnesia in our country, unfortunately. And so we don't understand how the history informs our present. We like to think, oh, that stuff was so long ago, but it actually wasn't. It was very recent and it's still with us today. And that's why we're still seeing the things. And so my major thing that I like for people to do is contextualize. Where did this come from? Like, where does racism come from? What caused it? Where did race come from? What caused that? How did we get to where we are today? To Jada's point, the interviews we did for this episode really made me wonder how much of the military's problems with racism come from the military itself and how much comes from American society. General James Johnson was the head of recruiting for the Air Force a few years ago. And he described something you hear about a lot from all of the services. The fact that a slimmer and slimmer slice of American society is even eligible for service. Things like health status and physical fitness, education and criminal or drug possession records all whittle away at the pool of possible recruits. This is a pretty typical lament you hear from senior military leaders. But then General Johnson pointed out how racial disparity in American society makes that problem even worse. And so now you're down to 4 million. And then of that, there are only 350,000 of those people that are even in, would be, we call uh, propensed, meaning they would be interested in serving if you talk to them about it. Some of those people are out in the middle of Iowa with no, you know, nobody's near them to, to engage them. You take that 350,000 who might be interested and the DOD has an annual requirement of 250,000. And so you start to see that it's a smaller and smaller subset. And so when we worked on this issue, we said, well, the challenge for us is to grow that 350,000. You know, the, the, the likelihood of being incarcerated is so much more, yeah. is higher, so much higher for a black child than a white child. Yeah, and for um, a black male than a black female. Right, and the disadvantage that is all out of economics and education and healthcare, and that affects how well we can recruit, right? So you can start there in the pipeline. The military, of course, can't change American society, 
It's not the military's role to do so, but much the way the military sets standards for eligibility and discipline it can still set standards that inhibit discrimination. I think there are a couple of like concrete areas the military probably needs to start thinking about more explicitly. And some of that is the extent to which standards they have disproportionately and disparately impact certain racial or ethnic groups, right? So hair standards are gonna have a different impact on black women than they are on white women, right? And grooming standards are gonna have a different impact on Sikhs and Orthodox, certain Orthodox communities than they are on other religious groups. And there needs to be a sort of like explicit understanding that even what could be sort of unbiased and neutral standards have disparate impact and we need to deal with that. I think the second big issue though, and actually I was, I was pleased to see this with the services because you don't always get it, is just really strong and explicit lack of tolerance for explicit biases, right? So I'm talking about these kind of softer issues like, oh, you have grooming standards and maybe there's a reason for them, but like we need to think about the impact. But like there's actually no readiness impact for like hanging Confederate flags, so we can probably just stop doing that. Right. And so I think like to the extent that there is explicit and continued language that really, really helps. Another focus area has been promotion boards, evaluations and fitness reports. General Batard says that he thinks changes in how those official records are handled would make a big difference. So at least in the Army, in the officer corps, you have a senior rater profile. And so that causes you to make sure that you don't senior rate more than 50 percent of the people in a top block or uh, HRC, which is, I think, Human Resources Command, will send you a bad note or you don't want that note. We'll do the same thing, similar, with diversity and inclusion. Have a non-binding, but just for awareness, how you stacked up minorities. And it may be only seen by you and HRC, but it'll quickly make people aware. It's also important not to get satisfied with what progress we do make. General Johnson talked about his experience taking command of an organization that had what he called a cultural problem. I can remember saying, you know, showing racism. And when I talked about racism, seeing people's eyes roll, you know, they kind of, because I think people, they rationalize, right? That doesn't yeah. go on here. Right. You know, we even as, got that out of the military. Right, yeah. Even as they tell the racist joke, right? Right. We're not racist, right? It's the same thing with, yeah, I found that in sexual assault too, right? As, mm-hmm. as much as people say that, you know, we're not, we're not sexist, but then they tell that joke that you're kind of like, really? You know that that's on the spectrum that leads to sexual assault and people don't understand how you create a culture that could lead to- That condones it, yeah. Condoning sexual assault, exactly right. Yeah. And um, not that, okay, because you told a joke, you're going to be a rape, rapist, or because you told that joke, you're necessarily a racist, but there's a spectrum of cultural, you know, things that happen in a culture that can condone that and then create the structures, that cultural structures that allow this, um, this bias, racism on that spectrum to exist. And, um, and I think too often we want to rationalize rather than recognize. You know, we're spending a lot of time on the way things can go wrong, but it was also striking just how often the people we talked to had stories about leaders and institutions doing the right things, and yet racism is still an issue. We asked Dr. Iyengar Plum if we should expect our current efforts to be any different. We fundamentally live in a country that is sort of based on these 
sublime ideals of like freedom and equality and, and notions of personhood that I think we all subscribe to. And we kind of have to hold in our heart the same time that the people who have been implementing that over the last several hundred years have been to, imperfect to say the least, right? And so we've kind of constantly fallen short of those ideals and we constantly have these programs and efforts to try to get us closer and closer here. So like kind of, if you take that as your starting point, then do I think these efforts are different? Yes. Do I think they're necessary? Yes. Do I think they will be sufficient to solve the problem? Almost certainly not. I would be shocked if they were. There seems to be a recognition of just how embedded in our sort of like cultural norms and behavior a lot of these biases are. And that actually just recognizing that does feel like an important step forward. Several of our guests told us how important allies in power are. People in the military, but also civilians who have some power and influence and can be a mentor or a model or intervene in racist practices. When we asked General Petard how he thought he managed to overcome the odds and reach a general officer rank, he explained it was a combination of his hard work and role models. It just so happened my sponsor was Armour, uh, Major Blaine Ball. Uh, my first tactical officer was Armour when I was there. My second tactical officer was Armour. My favorite instructors that were in, uh, it was really the history department. Most of them were Armour or Armour Cavalry. So I was surrounded with these role models. And then at that time at West Point, West Point had really, really tried to do a good job of getting some really quality African-American officers on the staff and faculty. There were seven uh, black officers who were there at West Point when, when I was there as a cadet. Of course, it's not enough to just exist. Dan White urges potential allies to do the hard work of really showing up for people. If, you know, in the conversation, be vulnerable and, and say things. Don't just sit back and listen the entire time, but also do your homework. So like if we say, hey, read Warmth of Other Sons, then read it and, and understand the black rate uh, migration, right? And we can have those race conversations. And Bishop Garrison thinks service leaders started out the summer on the right foot. But the uniform service leaders all have made, I believe, big efforts in terms of trying to engage the issue and address it properly at the outset. No one's pushing it to the side. No one is saying, oh, racism is not an issue. What you actually saw were a lot of like, no, Black Lives Matter. Let's go ahead and have these conversations. So that, that's something I'm really thankful for. Now, like Rod Iyengar Plum said, we all have to keep at it. That's our show for today. If you want to learn more about race, representation, and equity in national security, keep an eye out for CSIS's upcoming essay series, Represent. I'm going to be tweeting about it, so stay tuned. We want to thank our guests today, Bishop Garrison, Rada Iyengar Plum, Jada Johnson, James Johnson, Dana Pichard, and Daniel White. Many of them can be found on social media, and they've all written on these and other national security issues, so you should look them up. You can find us on Twitter. Jim is at Jim Golby, and I'm at AHFDC. The show is at TYFYS underscore podcast, and our email address is TYFYSpodcast at gmail.com. Light notes and bad jokes only, please. Thanks for listening. See you next time.